This episode is brought to you by Harris Resort SoCal. Nestled against a rolling hillside and just down the road from Palomar Mountain, guests at Harris Resort SoCal can expect gorgeous views, friendly staff, available night and day to encourage everyone to have a great time. When I was there recently, I had a chance to dine at California's first and the nation's largest house kitchen. And it's true, the beef wellington and sticky toffee dessert are great. The restaurant is inspired by the hit TV show and features a menu approved by the Michelin star celebrity chef, Gordon Ramsay himself. Hope to see you all at Harris Resort SoCal in 2024. Today, my guest is Hugh Ho. He is someone I think everyone should know about because of his enormous breadth of work in the film business in Hollywood. The work that Hugh has done in the last two decades is changing the hearts and minds of US and global audiences as it relates to the perceptions of Asians appearing on the big screen. And of course, as a film producer, television producer, he's very much behind the scenes, but his work continues to have a profound impact on the media landscape. We met in 1997 when I had a tiny Fahabanmi shop at UCLA. And since then, Hugh has gone on to do many, many brilliant things. Throughout the years, he was a producing partner with John Chu, the director of Crazy Rich Asians. And Hugh was also vice president for film development at BuzzFeed. And today, he's a co-founder of Eminent Collision, a company he started with Randall Park and Michael Galamko, two friends he met as a student at UCLA in the late 90s. Join us as we get a glimpse inside the mind of Hugh Ho. I'm Hugh Ho. I'm a film and TV producer and also co-founder of Eminent Collision. Thank you so much for coming on today, Hugh. Your story is, is special because you've been at this for a very long time. One of the uh, veterans in the Vietnamese um, producers community. What was your path in life when you were going through high school? I had no sort of idea that I was going to go into entertainment or the arts. That's not something that I, I even did in high school. So, you know, I was a, just to kind of back up and tell you a little bit of my story. I, you know, I was born in Vietnam, uh, came to the United States when I was one. We fled the country, just similar to a lot of folks that we know of that generation. But we made it to the U.S. And uh, I grew up in, uh, in Orange County with a bunch of other Vietnamese folks. Uh, specifically Costa Mesa. And, uh, you know, I was that typical latchkey immigrant kid. You know, I came home, watched a ton of TV uh, and uh, and just did the whole high school thing. It wasn't like entertainment was in my mind. And it wasn't until I got to college uh, that, and, and just so happened the year that I get to college, a new Asian American theater company had formed. It was called Lapu the Coyote That Cares. Um, by uh, a couple of folks who wanted to put on plays that they had written. And I was walking around campus and somebody hands me a flyer and it's Lapu the Coyote that Cares, presents Treehouse Bachelor Society. And I was like, what the fuck is this? What's a Lapu that cares? And so I, to be honest, didn't have anything better else to do. So I go up to oh. the uh, auditorium and I'll watch this play and it just, it changed my life. You know, it was yeah, one I of mean, those things that- Literally a luck. Cause if you didn't really have any intentions in high school of drama or theater and you're walking on the campus of UCLA and you see a flyer and it changes the tra trajectory. I talk about that idea of luck all the time on this podcast. Who was in the, the, who were the members at the time when you were coming up in that club? 
two people really important, Randall Park and Michael Glonko were in this theater company who are now my partners in uh, the company that we founded, Eminent Collision. So those bonds, those relationships began very, very early on. And so this theater company still exists today. After all these years, it was an actually a Jeopardy question last year. Uh, so it sort of made it into pop wow. culture. Ali Wong has come to this theater company. So a number of folks who continue to work in the entertainment space are now alumni of this group. And really at that time, you know, we were very fortunate and lucky. We just so happened to be on a campus that had uh, arguably the best Asian American studies department. So we had this background in Asian American history, the social construction of identity, but more importantly, we were around a shit ton of different people, right? And so we were able to figure out, well, who are we as artists? Who are we as storytellers? And what do we have to say? Where were you in all of this? Were you an actor? Were you a writer, producer, director? Where were you kind of putting yourself? At time, we didn't know what we were doing. So we were kind of doing it all. For myself, I never saw myself as an actor, but I was so inspired by the people around me. So I, uh, we all participated. I acted in, in scenes and sketches. I also did marketing for the group. I produced. Um, it was an incredibly collaborative environment. And it's almost freeing when you don't know the rules, right? When you're just moving on instinct. And at that time, it was just raw energy, raw talent of us just trying to tell stories. And we were fortunate in the fact that we can sort of reconcile a lot of this identity stuff early on. And we got to the place where we could just tell these very grounded stories of human truths, of universal themes that just happen to be from a specific perspective, right? And so hundreds of people would line up to go to our shows, not just simply Asian Americans, but all different types of folks, because we got this reputation for telling great stories. What do you think in the leadership was that sort of planted? Who is directing all this? Who came up with the, the seed of this club that, that sort of produced all these wonderful people? Yeah, it, it started with, you know, three friends, Randall Park being one of them, uh, that sort of put these together. They're all English majors. They're writing essays and plays. And they really, the sort of impetus to start the theater company was, we'd like to see this perform. We'd like to get together a group of friends. And so it started off in a really sort of, with a simple notion of just telling stories, right? And so that ballooned from there in terms of bringing people in, um, recruiting folks that had never acted before just to sort of do it. And I think that was the start. And luckily for this group, we just got together a bunch of, I would say like-minded mystics, you know, who were just willing to do anything and really believed in each other. So I think, um, you know, as the sort of each year progress. I think w what we had called it at the time is, you know, generation one, generation two, I'm G3 of Lapu uh, that Kairu that cares. And so each su subsequent generation, we brought in more folks, each with different skill sets, right? There were folks that came in that just produced, that led every quarter, we switched leadership roles, you know, and we kept it, um, we just kept it fresh and kept pushing each other. And I think that alchemy of very spe special mm -hmm. folks at a very special time, you know, created the types of storytelling that we were doing. And what was your career trajectory at the time? You, what were you studying? I was a sociology major. Oh, I started off as a, uh, what they call a biz econ major. You know, I, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I'm like, oh, maybe something in business. And I quickly found out that that uh, economic theory in college was not my strong point. And uh, I switched over to sociology to sort of begin to think about what I wanted to do. 
And I think it was my second year in college that I, I had made a list for myself of things that I loved. And at the top of that list were movies. You know, I loved watching movies at that time. And, or I've always loved watching movies since I was a kid. And I said, well, I'm in LA. I'm very close to the entertainment business. Why don't I start exploring this? And I started doing uh, entertainment industry, uh, internships at all the different studios, particularly in marketing and publicity. That was sort of an area that I understood at that time. You got to remember, like, this is the late 90s. There were no role models at this time. The folks that were in the business were sort of struggling themselves and just trying to sort of survive. And so there was no reach out. There was no, no, nobody that we can call to sort of get mentorship on, right? And whether as actors, as writers, directors, performers, it just didn't really exist. And everyone was sort of just trying to figure it out. So at the time, I too, you know, as a young kid, trying to figure out well, what did I want to do with my life? And that opened the door to looking at, well, what does it mean to be a professional entertainment? And what can I do? What's available to me? What are the pathways that are possible? Yeah. So what was going on in your mind at that time when you were thinking about where is my role? Uh, you know, it, it was like with anybody else, you're just trying to figure out who you are as a person as well. Right. And then what you want to do. And, you know, there was always those kids who were like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a consultant. I'm going to, and I personally did not know exactly what I wanted to do. You know, I was just looking for different opportunities. Again, it wasn't like I had family that was in this business, you know, or anybody that I can turn to. So a part of that was just kind of like um, stumbling along and trying to figure it out. These internships that I was doing helped gave me a window into possible career paths, right? So my first internship was at MTV News. And that was really exciting. At the time, it was such a big brand. There was TRL. I would go into the Santa Monica office. All these musicians and, and, and folks that I saw on TV would come through. And I sat there on a computer logging and transcribing tapes for seven hours a day. And I loved it. And I was like, just to have that proximity was exciting to me. And I started beginning to think, oh, okay, this is possible. This is real. What is it exactly I wanted to do? Didn't know. Didn't know. And so you finish up at UCLA and the next chapter is very exciting because um, anybody who comes out of this program, which is the Peter Stark producing program, the master's program at USC, which is my alma mater, uh, you make the transition to go from a rival school to another rival school. But it is um, it is transformative. I know that the guys and gals that come out of that program are, are rock stars. And so what what led you from graduating UCLA that time period and then applying to the part uh, to the Stark program? Like what, what was the transition like? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So it took actually a few years, you know, after I graduated, I was very fortunate. I, um, uh, Warner brothers had started a global management program the year that I graduated. It was, in, you know, an incredibly competitive process. It took like four or five months of multiple interviewings, multiple passes. When I graduated, I didn't have a job. And finally, in the summer of 2020, you know, they, I had gotten notice that I got into this program and that sort of kickstarted my career in entertainment professionally. I um, was working at Warner Brothers. I was assigned to the WB television network, uh, you know, at the t which was at a golden era, the Golden Girls, Felicity, you know, um, Dawson's Creek, all that stuff was going on. So I had a front row seat to incredibly um, hot pop culture shows. 
I was doing marketing at the time and helping to do on-air radio promotions as well as digital promotions. And that was at the very forefront of all that kind of work. And so it got me into a place where, you know, I got, I felt very comfortable. Things would come to me, scripts, episodes and stuff, and I would have to write and come up with the creative for that. But that process became, it just became so familiar to me. And I was like, I want to participate in not selling these shows, but creating them myself. Mm -hmm. I want to have a say in what stories get to be told and put out there. And so that began my thinking of, well, how can I participate? Should I participate as a writer, as a director? Uh, and that led to this idea of being a producer, right? And what exactly that is, you know, because even today, everyone throws around this word producer, but it, it's a job and a title that means different things in different areas. So, but at that time, I started realizing that, oh, I can sort of use the, some of the business acumen things that I had and, had and was learning and I also apply that with sort of the creative instincts that I had developed over the past few years, particularly in the theater company and at the different internships. So I said, yeah, that's probably what I want to do. And I left Warner Brothers and started, um, I made a short, the first short film that I made was with my two partners today. Uh, it was a short film called Dragon of Love, written by Mike Colampio, starring Randall Park. It, uh, it won the audience award at the Hawaii International Film Festivals and traveled around a bunch of people. And that gave me the confidence to say, oh, I can produce. I can put these things together. Um, and I started working, go, you know, sort of going back. I started as an assistant and working for uh, producers and managers. I went to New York and worked for the filmmaker Darren Aronofsky. And while I was there, I had applied to get into the START program. Mm -hmm. And not knowing because they only accept 25 people a year. You know, it was harder to get in that program than like Harvard. Uh, but I, I felt very lucky. I got in and decided to go and decided just to really uh, double down and commit to the craft of producing and really understanding what that, uh, how to hone and develop those skills for myself. I have two questions. Uh, the first question is when you have a, a split in the road, a fork in the road between writing, producing and directing, how do you weigh that out? That's the first one. And then the other thing is, how do you know how, if you can look back and think about the acceptance into the Stark program being harder to get into that than Harvard, why do you think you got in? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, but I can say, I can tell you the why, why I applied and why I wanted to go. And those whys, I thought at the time, you know, I spoke to, you know, um, Aronofsky, who I was working for, and, you know, he had gone to school, film school, he'd gone to AFI, but he's like, you don't need to go to film school, you know, and he's like, but if you do, you know, go for it and know that the door is always open with me. You can, uh, you can go try it out and come back if it doesn't work out. That also gave me the sort of mm. boost of, oh, I should try it. And really, you know, I, w I wasn't like... I didn't come from a family of means, you know, kind of thing. A very working class family. I paid for school myself and I was going to pay for grad school myself. So that was a huge financial commitment that I had to take out all these student loans. But what I rationalized at the time was when I'm old, much, much older and looking back and I had this opportunity to attend a sort of renowned program to study what I was passionate about. At that time, I understood because I had a few years under my belt. I love filmmaking. I love pop culture. I love television. I wanted to do this uh, for a good chunk of my life. And why not take this opportunity? Why not take two years, right, to really commit 
and 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 acquire whatever skills I knew. Because at the time, it's like I had folks that had gone to film school, and when you don't know what something is, you're like, when you after you do it, you realize, oh, should I have done this? Should I not? You know, I don't have any regrets. But people ask me all the time, should I go to film school? And I'm like, um, maybe, right? It's not a a requirement, right? I think what is a requirement is feeling passionate about exploring and about trying. So your question of should I be a writer, a director, producer? I think you can't even answer that until you explore those pathways. What does it mean to be a writer? What does it mean to be a, a screenwriter in film? What does it mean to be a writer in television? What it mean? What does it mean to be a writer in plays? You know, and what does it mean to be a director? Like, how does that work? I think when you only see that from afar, it feels romanticized and be like, oh wow, I, I want to be famous like an act. Like that's what I want. I think the reality hits when you're actually auditioning and trying and actually going in front of the camera and you know, and that react. So I think people need to try and see, am I comfortable with this? Do I want to push myself? And it has to come from a place of real curiosity because that shit is too hard, right? As we all know, way, way too hard. So you're not going to make it unless you really have that drive. But but there's also this this situation where you could sit at the laptop for 15 years, cranking out script after script after script, and then realizing that you're just not as good as the stuff that's being put out there, not even like a fraction of what's, and that is a heartbreaking journey sort of um, because it's not even about how good your ideas are. There's so much involved, like there's execution and then there's speed. uh, And then there's like the, the width of your, of your creativity and how, so when you're thinking about writing, directing, acting, these things take time to really, under understand and that's why my question goes back to how did you realize that producing was your lane yeah i you know for me it was it particularly in film school right you did everything you you did cinematography you did editing you did writing you did directing um performing if you wanted to you know in the sort of short films that we made so i having gone through that process i knew that producing was something that i felt pretty passionate about like that I understood, you know, which ultimately a producer is really a project manager, takes all the pieces together, has a sort of vision, goes out and acquires material and packages things together. And so I fundamentally understood that was my skill set, right? I, early on, I, I understood that even in, in high school, that one of my superpowers is to, to recognize talent in other people and help empower that talent, right? Mm. And being a producer, that's specifically your job is to gather folks, right? And, and rally people towards a very common vision to sort of create particular stories. And that was something that I just felt, you know, it was a feeling. It was something that I said to myself, well, you know, to your point, it just takes reps, right? It could yeah. take years. And I think you have to give yourself that grace to go on a journey to see if it actually makes sense. And also to adapt, to pivot, if that's not something. But I don't, I don't think it's, I never see any of this as a waste of time. I see it as building towards something. Right. And that's things that to understand. And, and I would you see this very often in a lot of creatives. It takes time. It takes a long time and a certain amount of luck. Right. You know, my partner, Randall, he spent years, right, years struggling, you know, and he was the ultimate renaissance man in college. We thought he was a star. Everyone thought he was a star. Everyone. And we knew it. And it took him a long time. And we're talking about like, you know, he was he was working at a Starbucks and living at home at a certain point. 
into his late 20s, you know, kind of thing. Uh, it wasn't even till 2017, most recently, that yeah. he was even with 100 credits to the name that he starred in a film. It was the first time ever, you know, and Always Be My Maybe. So oftentimes it takes a long time. Some people have a shorter path, sometimes have a longer path. I think we have to each ask ourselves, how do we define the path that we're on? How do we define success? And sometimes that success is this sort of material endgame or, or um, popularity or fame. And sometimes the success just means going on this journey and staying in the game. You know, uh, those are things that um, require so much grit to discover about yourself. Uh, being around this world for, you know, this entertainment world since the, 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 the mid-90s, late-90s for you, you are almost, um, and Anderson Lay and I talk about this, another producer, you are like one of the historians of the Asian-American entertainment space because you got to see a blank canvas and then the coming up of like the Wong Fu guys and all of the people in the Asian-American space on YouTube and the internet and even in Hollywood itself, you, 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 know, you saw it. And did you think that it would ever arrive? to the point where it's at today? Yeah, that's a, that's a really question, great question. I think in, at that time, you just don't, you know, you're in it, right? So you don't know, and I'll give you an example. So I first went to Sundance, you know, 20 some years ago, I think it was 23 years ago, and it was in support of Better Luck Tomorrow. And I, at that time, it was incredibly exciting. You know, we thought, that everything was going to change. The business was going to change. This was such a, this was going to open all sorts of doors and it was incredibly exciting to all of us. And what subsequently happened as we, as a lot of us know is nothing, right? <laughs> These hills and valleys of, of entertainment of, oh my gosh, this is going to happen, but then nothing happens. And, you know, all the things that we think in terms of telling different stories, um, it start and stops, right? And I think that that was a very early lesson to me that things just don't magically happen, that you have to actually put into motion. And I think that we're building on top of the work of multiple other communities, right? And multiple other people that have struggled before us. And I think I want to, I want to stay, you know, we have a very specific legacy. It's not that the, I was working off of, the, of filmmakers and artists that were doing multiple things before me, you know, including, you know, you know, friends that we know, like from the, the Boy Brothers and Three Seasons yeah. to before that with Wayne Wang's Chan is Missing. There is a long legacy of artists, of filmmakers that I that had come before me. And then as I stepped into it, building upon that and pushing through. And so we arrive at this point, which I, I wouldn't call even an arrival. I would <laughs> call that we are in process, in journey, in transit to just creating more like the uh, Emmys were just announced this morning, right? And one of the shows that I have been obsessing over is Beef. Yeah. Uh, starring two friends, Stephen uh, Yen and Ali Wong, uh, created by Sunny Lee. This is a show that I've been waiting for for so long in the sense that it's an incredibly compelling entertainment TV show with very complicated characters that just so happen to be predominantly Asian American. But the show doesn't hinge simply on being Asian, right? It doesn't hinge, you know, on Ali's Vietnamese American character, right? It hinges, it's a part of who she is and a part of that character. 
but it's nuanced. And I think as a storyteller, that's been what I've been wanting. That's what is exciting to me. You know, when we started this company, I'm going to close it. That was a part of our mission is to tell these universal stories that just happen to be from a very specific perspective, right? And so I think that all of this, all of the things that have come before us has led to where we are now and where we're hoping to go, right? And, and just to let the audience know, when you talk about Better Luck Tomorrow, that, has to, that happens to be a film uh, done by Justin Lin. He is the Uber director, mastermind behind the uh, Fast and Furious um, legacy. He was the one who, who built this whole franchise up. So for you to talk about you going to Sundance with Better Luck Tomorrow goes way back you know, in time. Um, it, 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 you're right. We're standing on, on, on the shoulders of these giants. And um, you as a such a, you know, it's really a decorated veteran, you know, in this space. You know, I, I, I do view you that way because of your, your consistent involvement, never dropping out of the business um, since the late 90s. So, you know, it's beautiful to, you know, like I said, I've been waiting a long time to, to sit here and chat with you about the history of all this stuff, too. Oh, thanks, Ken. Yeah, it was, uh, it, it was such a moment for me this January because I went back to Sundance for the first time with my own film. Uh, shortcomings, which comes out in the theaters in a few weeks, August 4th, quick plug. Uh, but that was such a sort of almost full circle moment for me. Like all these years, at the time um, with Butter Luck Tomorrow, I, I thought to myself, oh, well, I can't wait to do this myself. I can't wait to bring a film. Mm -hmm. And it took so long, right? It took all these years. And, and, and I had a, I, I've had a very eclectic career in terms of working in all the spaces that you mentioned. I've worked in digital. I've worked in TV, I've worked in film, I've worked in live entertainment across the board. And I think um, that's all sort of built towards what I'm doing now in terms of being able to run my own company and creating these different stories in film, in TV, in all the different areas that we're exploring. But when I was at Sundance this year, I felt that. I felt that this, you know, this journey is long, right? And you gotta, yeah. you know, it was one of those things like, it's hard, but if you really like, that's why it takes a certain amount of drive and passion to stay in the game. It's got to be, it's got to come from an internal place, right? Yeah. It, there's got to be a bit of passion, a bit of curiosity, a bit of grit, as you mentioned, like all that has to come into play um, because this business is way too hard. You know, I, I think when I think about all the, the, the members of this kind of community, you think about the first 25 years, it's like you're, nobody's like even a blip on the radar. You know, and then how many more years do we have left working? Really, uh, another twenty years, and even in the next twenty years, it's going to take another ten years for us to be like at that level where you know everybody in town takes or picks up your calls. You know, and I want to bring up this point that um, also I want to bring up uh, this really cool point that you work with John Chu. Yeah, and. That is phenomenal. I, was it after after Stark, obviously, right? Uh, after the Stark program, you... It was actually before Stark that we started oh, our wow. collaboration. I had just graduated. After I had left Warner Brothers and started exploring producing on my own, I had met John in a program with Film Independent. And so he was still finishing up school at USC. And he approached me to help him produce his, his thesis film when the kids are away. This was a 23 minute short musical that uh, it was one of those stories of legends at USC film school. This is a, a short that got him 
uh, a two-picture deal with Steven Spielberg. It got him an agent at William Morris at the time. Wow. It sort of was his calling card. And this is graduating as an undergrad at a wow. USC. And it was, it, it's still legendary today. And so, uh, you know, I had met him early on and we had such a great collaboration. Then I went on and do, did other work myself, including going to Stark. And then after Stark, you know, we had reconnected. And this is, at that time, the whole digital game was just starting, right? YouTube had started in 2005 or roughly thereabouts. The red camera had just come out, right? And so having just come out of film school and he had just finished his first feature uh, film, Step Up to the Streets, we said, why don't we, this is such a great medium right now. There's such exciting work being done. Why don't we, you know, and he had this idea, like he's always been in the dance and musical space and he had this idea to do a very ambitious, um, story that uh, that put dancers in a superhero type comic book world right and um he had pitched it to me and i said oh this is way out there this is incredible fuck it let's just do this you know we <laughs> thought oh we're just gonna do at that time remember there's like little girl 15 there's just these websters that people shot in the bedroom we're like no we're just gonna get all our film school kids together and we're gonna shoot something incredibly cinematic you know we're gonna go above and beyond what people normally do in the digital series space and we went out and did it. We, we, this, the, the show was called The Legion of Extraordinary Dancers, the LXD. It got acquired by Paramount Pictures. It was the first Hulu, one of the first Hulu mm -hmm. originals uh, on Hulu. And that spun off to be live touring. It's, we did a TED Talk. It began a creative uh, partnership with John's, uh, where we then started developing our own digital studio and then eventually uh, a film and TV production company. So. This episode is brought to you by Songkai Distillery, my only go-to gin company. Established in 2018, Songkai Distillery is Vietnam's first gin distillery founded by Daniel Nguyen, a Vietnamese American from Southern California. No matter how many people I have at my parties, we are always pouring Songkai gin. Songkai gin is handcrafted in small batches and prioritizes using botanicals and ingredients that are native and heirloom to Vietnam. The result is a product uniquely Vietnamese in taste and aroma. Songkai is now growing to include rice wine and traditional Vietnamese herbal liqueurs similar to Amaro. Songkai prides itself in Vietnam from the farmers who grow the fruits and herbs to the artists behind the artwork and design. Songkai is a community effort of people who are proud to be Vietnamese and collectively embody the spirit of Vietnam. And you know, the most recent uh, project that John Chu did is Crazy Rich Asians, right? Yeah, yeah. That's it's just incredible to think about the, the timeline, the progression of your involvement with all of the people that, you know, have, have traversed through this universe in the, in the last 20 years. It's, it's phenomenal. It, and here we it, are. Here we are. And, you know, it's it, on, the, on the one hand, I want to say it's such a small community, right? I feel very fortunate to sort of, have intersected with a lot of these great um, filmmakers and uh, and collaborators. I think that, you know, I do feel fortunate that I've had a bit of front row seat these past two decades to a lot of great changes and, and great storytelling. And I think that what's exciting to me is what's to come, you know, is sort of these next few years and, and the hope that, you know, that you know, there are a lot of these conversations with regard to all the different kinds of storytellers that can be told, the sort of impetus for a lot of these different movements in all these different communities. And I think that that's all really exciting, right? 
And really, at the end of the day, progress for any artist is being able to tell whatever story that they are passionate about, right? That's the place that we want to be in. I think yep. that anybody wants to be in a place where we're to having told these particular stories because of whatever reason, we just want to be able to tell things that speak to us, right? To speak to our truth, right? And there's that notion, very famous notion that um, Viet Thanh Nguyen talks about narrative scarcity and narrative plenitude. Our goal, the game is to reach narrative plenitude. So uh, that is a, another thing that Anderson Lay and I talked about, you know, this morning. Um, I was like, hey, I'm going to go and, and talk to Hugh. I mean, give me, give me some ideas because, you know, I do a lot of research, but uh, I know that Anderson understands you very well. And so we had this conversation and you said this whole thing about the plenitude. So at what point is too much stories a bad thing because we can't have i mean if you think about the white american mainstream they just put out and even the black mainstream uh they just put out films and content as much as they want and things can dive and they bomb and but in the asian american space where we're talking about plenitude is there a fine line that we shouldn't cross when we're thinking about having too much out there no, 100% no. So when we think about Hollywood pop culture, right? 1920 to 2020, these past 100 years, if we're really looking at the sort of intersections of identity, race, gender, social class, sexual orientation, age, or combinations thereof, those infinite POVs, jack shit has been done. Jack shit. So we are at a point where creating more stories at different points of, let's even just talk about uh, stories that feature Vietnamese Americans. What are there? You and I know that there are only a handful out there, right? There aren't that many examples. And so, and who we are as a community, uh, you know, as we talk about a lot is not one thing, right? You know, we are a monolith. We, different generations, different social class, different everything kind of thing, different experiences. Why can't we see that in storytelling, right? Yeah. That should be reflected. I think that because of this narrative scarcity, each project that has subsequently come out and even today has this sort of burden of, representation yeah. right that burden shouldn't have to be placed upon that particular show or project right and the only way to get away from that is actually to tell a bunch of more stories a bunch of different stories and say this story this particular film is truthful for these artists for these storytellers it may not be truthful to you but the hope is right and we've we've heard this phrase before in the specific you speak to the universal yeah. right that's the sort of game i think these past few years, when we're looking at global platforms such as Netflix or Amazon, they've really sort of shown Hollywood, right, that it's not like the audience, the global audience, only wants to see one type of story, i.e. just with white people, right? They want to see stories that are from fresh perspectives, right, that are grounded with these universal truths. The number one streaming show on Netflix to this day is still a show that's not in English, right, with South Korean stars that's slightly dystopian, Squid Games Day is still the number one most streaming show all around the world, right? And that is a clear example, right? That there is a lot of room to grow, a lot of different types of storytellers. This sort of notion that, oh, we don't want to tell these stories because it's not good for business. That's all a bunch of bullshit, yep. right? That's a, a ton of bullshit. I think that, that those barriers are being broken slowly, right? A lot of different sort of challenges in the mix, but, you know, to your question of should we be like, is there this fine line? Like at this moment, there really shouldn't be any line, right? Because there's so many different stories to tell. And 
and I want to encourage all folks out there, like you've got, it, everyone has their own story to tell, right? And which is valid. And you should be able to go and do that, right? Uh, from your perspective. It's a great answer. And I agree with you. The more the merrier. We just keep, keep pumping out material, keep pumping out content, podcasts, music, films. We should just keep going. Totally. Yeah, should keep going. So I want to just sort of use this space right now and we'll get to other topics, but I want to talk about shortcomings and then we'll remind the audience at the end uh, about the release August 4th. But can you tell me how this project came about? Yeah, it's it's been brewing for quite some time. Um, you know, Randall, my producing partner, he's been thinking about it since uh, I believe 2007. You know, he was... Uh, in West LA, there's Saltel Boulevard, and there's a store called Giant Robot. It's a pop culture type store. He came in and he saw this new graphic novel, Shortcomings, by Adrian Tomine. Uh, and at the time, you know, he was very much a struggling actor, you know, and was debating on whether he was going to stay in this business, you know, whether it made sense. And in reading this graphic novel, which was about deeply flawed Asian American characters, he'd never seen that before, right? In, in graphic novel form. Frankly, there wasn't much of it. In in pop any culture form, it sort of inspired him to say that, oh, this is the kind of story that I want to be a part of. This spoke to him in a way that it reflected his 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 real life, you know, sitting in cafes, sitting in diners, talking to friends, dealing with breakups, um, dealing with the complexities of friendships, of relationships, all that kind of stuff was very real, you know. And here it was in a way that was uh, that spoke to him deeply. And he kept telling me about it over the years, you know, and him and I had stayed very close um, since college and, and had worked together on a number of different things. And, and it wasn't until, you know, a few years ago, three and a half years ago specifically, where we, were, we talked about formalizing something and doing, you know, creating a company ourselves, that this idea shortcomings came back around. He said, you know, what? I wonder what's going on with shortcomings. I said, I don't know. We'll find out, you know. I'll find out. And so in digging around, found out that there was an option on the graphic novel with, the, with another company. We spoke to that company, said, hey, we want to do this. Randall wants to direct this. Here's our vision for it. Um, let's do this together. And so it ended up working out. And that began the formal process of getting that project together, which was challenging to say the least. Nobody, let me tell you something, nobody wants to do a small slice of life drama comedy about deeply flawed Asian American characters. That's not something that's like, oh my gosh, you know, like we're going to do that. We're going to throw all, all this money together. That's not something that was readily apparent. And we understood that, you know, and Randall at the time, you know, he's a, he's a celebrity, he's a name, even with his name, it was a challenging to sort of get in the door with folks um, and have them see the vision. But we were very fortunate that we have, uh, two collaborators, um, Topic Studios and Tango Entertainment that believed in our vision, that believed that this was a story worth telling. And, uh, you know, from there, we just put it together. Uh, you know, the financing took some time. We locked that up until the very last minute, right, of last year. This was, you know, this is, this is not far away. This is actually very recent, of early spring last year, which then led us right into production of summer of, 20, oh. of last year. You know, and we were editing at the same time time to make the enhanced deadline in the fall, right? Uh, and when we found, and this was very fast, and as you know, this is like almost lightning in a bottle, uh, the fall of last year to get that call from, uh, from Sundance saying that 
we were the one of the first films to get accepted into the dramatic competition. That was it. Uh, it was a moment I don't think we'll ever forget. Mm -hmm. It was such an incredible journey to put this film together, to get such great talent a part of it. Justin Min, Sherry Cola, Ali Mackey. Um, in, in addition to, you know, I, I want to specifically talk about also behind the scenes. We talk a lot about the directors and the actors and people who are in front, but filmmaking, as you know, is, is a deeply team sport. It's deeply collaborative. And I think that the artists that are, are behind the scenes, the department heads, the cinematographer, the production designer, the editors, the ADs, the grips, the, you know, the gaffer, everyone is an artist in their own right. And they, and who they are, their lived experience helps elevate storytelling in and of itself. So I think behind the scenes, it was incredibly important for us to gather a team that had this wide experience, that had this um, connection to the material, right? And I think that, I, you know, I want to point that specifically, and that's not an easy thing, right? To do an independent film, shooting in New York City predominantly um, during this sort of COVID era, which we, you know, which at least 20% of the budget went towards uh, COVID precautions, including testing, that is incredible strain on a film budget, right? We're talking about a huge chunk to make sure that people are safe, which understandably we did, you know, but it was for an independent film, you don't get a discount for testing, you know, whether you're a studio film or an independent film, you just test, right? You pay the same amount of money for these labs. So I think that, you know, for us to be able to get this done under the conditions uh, we had in a way that we feel incredibly uh, proud of the outcome, I, you know, I feel, um, uh, really gratified, really gratified. What goes into the decision of making a film that is very commercially viable versus something that is what you described a slice of life where you feel a strong connection to? How can you make that distinction as a producer in your mind and go out with such confidence to say, we got to get this done? I think, again, it speaks to passion, right? This is something that my producing partner was incredibly passionate about, that has been thinking about. And we were very fortunate at that time to be in a place where we were working on a number of different projects. We primarily worked with studio films, with network and streaming television shows. So we had that as our foundation. So mm. it, the independent film space is incredibly difficult, right? You know, but we were fortunate to be in a place where our business was diversified and we were able to tackle on the challenges, you know, including the financial challenges of taking a project on that may or may not, um, you know, um, be able to come together, right? It was one of those things where we didn't know if this project was going to, well, we don't back, frankly don't know if any project is going to come together, but uh, particularly in the independent world, there's not much budget, right? And there are not that many resources. And so you have to be in a place where you're driven to tell this particular story and uh, that you are in a privileged place to have the resources to keep going through. So our calculation at the time was we were able, we were finally in a place to be able to tell the story, right? To have that foundation to, to go after this and to see if it can be done. This notion of determining what's commercial, what's not commercial, I think is, is a little bit difficult because as we've seen in a number of independent films, those things can launch careers. Those highly um commercial 
Everything Everywhere All Wants is a yeah. great example of that, right? That's only the second film for the Daniels kind of thing. But I would argue in time, we'll, you know, and obviously with all the acclaim, will be one, is one of the greatest films uh, in cinematic history, right? And I think that when we're talking about estimating commerciality or success, all that guy, I think those are things get a little fuzzy. What you have to really say is, do I as an artist, do I as a storyteller have to tell the story? And if I have to tell the story, I think that is the decision point, right? Of sort of pushing forward in addition to sort of making sure that you're not going to go broke, that you're not going to suffer. But I mean, if we go back to Better Luck Tomorrow, Justin put out like seven credit cards, right? To get that film together. He put it all on the line, right? Make or break to get his calling card out. I think everyone has to determine that for themselves. They're sort of the line that they have and, and what they're willing to do to, to tell their story. It's great insight. Very cool. Thank you so much for, for sharing that part of shortcomings. I want to switch over to now the food scene in LA, because I know yeah. you're such a big, you have such, um, you have a lot of thoughts about that. And, you know, you, I understand go down to Orange County once a week to spend uh Sundays with your family and it's like a kind of a non-negotiable in your life. And I think that speaks volumes uh, to consistency, to family values and community to go down and commit to having uh, that family dinner once uh, a week on Sunday. Now, all of that being said, uh, you've always said that there's something missing in LA proper. Can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And it's probably controversial as, as you and I have talked about, Ken, this, I, and very passionate about food. I wouldn't call myself necessarily a foodie because I don't quite understand that label, but I love food and I love to eat. And I think that um, it really is, you know, this notion of breaking bread, this, this notion of not just nourishment for one's body, but nourishment for one's soul. You know, in the sense that I see food as this connector. I see this food as a legacy of love. I think, you know, particularly for, I can only speak to me and not necessarily like, the general Vietnamese community, but for me, my family, it's always been a, a central point of eating and, and coming together. And uh, uh, so in particular, Vietnamese food is something that I love. I'll try it everywhere. I just got back from Paris uh, and, and I often try different foods, uh, different Vietnamese restaurants, wherever I kind of go. But uh, I would say that over the years, I've evolved my feelings <laughs> about Vietnamese food. I think that uh, I'm the kind of person that loves my mom's cooking. You know, I think that that, uh, that, and I didn't took it for granted when I grew up. For, as a kid, it was always like, oh, we're eating this again, or can you make hamburgers, or like that kind of stuff. But over time, and as I became an adult and my palate became a, a, a much more evolved, I recognized that this is the food that brought me a lot of comfort. This is the food that I love. And so, and in particular, going back to Vietnam, I was like, I had thought growing up in Orange County and and sort of eating and being a part of that community that I've eaten all types of yeah. food. And when I went back to Vietnam, I realized, nope, that wasn't the case, that there was so much more to explore. And I would say that, you know, uh, I've been on this exploration path, including Los Angeles, including trying different things. And I think that what I would love to see more, not to say that, uh, that, that there are certain restaurants and, and out there that aren't doing, uh, you know, the, that aren't beloved, you know, that kind of thing that I would like to see this recognition that there is this wide range of food, Vietnamese food, right? And, I, you know, living in LA proper myself, 
I don't find a lot of restaurants that are servicing, you know, all the, you know, not just the all-stars, not just pho, not just banh mi, like all the things that make up, uh, you know, uh, home meals, you know, all the different dishes and all the different combination and all the different herbs, you know, that have been iterated for over the past thousands of years, right? To arrive at this recipe kind of thing that arrive at this, yeah. this beautiful alchemy kind of thing that should be allowed for people to sort of play jazz and try and do fusion. Yeah. All that stuff I think is fine. I'm, I'm not a purist when it comes to that stuff. Uh, I want to try it all, but I do love the sort of home dishes as well. And, and for me, I'd love to see more restaurants that are, and more chefs out there that are creating this. I think when you're, you know, I asked my parents one time, like these restaurants in Bolsa, I'm like, how come they don't just come up to LA? You know, why not? And my mom's like, why? They're super popular where they are, right? And they're, why split their time to go all the way up to LA? Because that's less time with the family. You know, they're already making enough. I think it takes the second generation or possibly the third generation to see that business opportunity to want to explore. And uh, I think a lot of times if you're, as both you and I know, if you're kids of immigrants, you're, you, you're the, the parents are telling you not to work in the restaurant, right? They're yeah. telling you to go do something else, you know, something more stable kind of thing. And I think that the, of our generation, the ones that went back to say cooking school kind of thing, they are similar to any artist want to do things on their own, want to break away kind of thing. And I think that I love seeing that. And I love seeing this, these different generations that are coming out. You know, there's, I saw this, uh, uh, the chef, you know, this Vietnamese chef that's going to open up a restaurant like La Brea, I think, and she became a TikTok over the, uh, star over the pandemic with her cooking. I think that to me is so inspiring to see, right? This next generation trying and pushing forward and, uh, and doing new things. And I love it. I'm here for it. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, she's opening up in WeHo. It's, uh, yeah. what a, what a wonderful story. Uh, I'm reaching out to see if we can get her on the podcast. Her her journey has been incredible to 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 follow. Amazing, yeah, for sure. And you know, I, I bring this up because you know um, we do need more of this food, our food, represented here in LA because there's really not a whole lot. If you really break it down, there's not a yeah. whole lot. And I think that there is room for more restaurants, a good twenty more restaurants. Why not? You know, like yeah. plenitude. A hundred percent, a hundred percent of all different types of things. And I know, and, and for, and for us to also allow different business models. And what I, and what I mean by that is quote unquote, ethnic food has been sort of like devalued, right? That it should only cost this amount of stuff. I would argue to you, an incredible bowl of pho is just as elevated and complicated as a pasta dish, right? Easy. They should be valued the same. The amount of labor that goes into it, as you and I know, as, as you personally know, as a cook yourself, like it is complicated technique and it takes uh, incredible ingredients as well and to, to put that combination together. I mean, it should be valued at a higher price point, but we're so used to paying at a certain level. And I think that that's why it's exciting for me to see these new restaurants, like this one coming out um, in West Hollywood I, my guess is, is it's going to be at a at a higher price point. Yeah, you know, kind it of should and be. I think that that should be right. We should, it should celebrate be that. Higher. Yeah, totally. Hugh, totally. what what does it mean to be Vietnamese to you nowadays? <laughs> wow, that's a that's a really good question. Uh, I don't know if I can necessarily answer that. You know, because 
again, who we are is so vast, is so infinite, right? But what I can tell you is, well, what does it mean to be me? I can tell you about my, you know, personal experience. And, and that story, you know, as I mentioned earlier, is I'm a refugee immigrant kid from Vietnam, you know, but I came here when I was one, so I don't remember any of that kind of stuff. I grew up in Orange County with a bunch of, with more Vietnamese folks than I think most people kind of yeah. thing, you know, in that community. But it was specific to our family, right? It wasn't like, I, you know, I wouldn't say that you're Vietnamese if you grew up in, in Orange County or in San Jose or Houston, you know, you're, uh, I don't want to put those markers on it. I think that that can be defined and anybody can sort of put those labels on themselves if they choose so. You know, how I define my experience is the totality of where I come from, you know, and the totality of my experience. So I think the best way for anyone to just sort of define that, and I would say just for myself, is just tell your story in all of its aspects, you know. I have three other siblings. I, uh, you know, I grew up in a Buddhist household, but Buddhism wasn't pressed upon me. We just went to temple every once yeah. in a while, right? We had these family meals all the time kind of thing. And I think, you know, going back to, you had mentioned that I have these family dinners on Sundays, which I do, which has become really important part ritual in my life. That didn't all happen throughout, mm -hmm. you know, uh, my entire life. I only came to that, I would say, within the past decade, you know, as I'm older, you know, as I've grown up, like when I was a kid, I'm like, fuck, I wanted to get away as far as I could. You know, I didn't want, <laughs> I'm, not going, I'm not going home. I had other things to do kind of thing. And it wasn't until I'm older. I remember, I don't know if it was like an Atlantic article, but it was an infographic. It basically gave the averages of how many times you saw your family once you left the house at 18. And it was a very finite number, wow. right? Depending on how close you live, the proximity, all that kind of stuff. But let's just say you moved out of state, right? Really, in all honesty, you're seeing your family once or twice a year, maybe, right? Times 10, 20 years, right? And, the, and that really shook me in terms of, I'm, so, I'm not that far. I'm like, you know, from LA to Orange County, it's like an hour, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm not that far. I can increase that number if I wanted to. And in the beginning, I just started showing up. I just started coming home more. And over time, it became a grounding force. And I can be honest with you, in, it, with me, I speak English to my parents and they speak Vietnamese to me, right? My, my spoken Vietnamese isn't that great. Listening, I'm pretty fluent at, right? But that just evolved over time. You know, when I was a kid, I, I, they had sent me to Vietnamese school on Saturday, but I, I didn't give a shit. I ditched yeah. and went to 7-Eleven to play Street Fighter 2. That's what I spent my time on. So uh, from that aspect, even now, I feel it, there's a sense of, as an adult, a little bit of regret in, yeah. that, in that I can't fully communicate with my parents, but at minimum I can show up, I can be present. And that alone selfishly is grounding for me. One, I get great food. And two, I get this sort of feeling of um, this grounding feeling, you know, of being around my nephews, my nieces, my sisters who are down there in Orange County. I think that to me has become uh, a really important stabilizing factor in the sense that I work in a very unstable business, you know, kind of thing. And that just has been a consistent that has really helped me. And a part of who I am as being a person of Vietnamese descent, you yeah. know, going back to your question that all, all of it, the totality and the nuance and the details that's of that are for me. Right. And I, and I wouldn't put that marker. I wouldn't put that attribute as the marker of being Vietnamese for anyone else. Right. I could just speak to my own sort of self. And I want to return back to how can our audience 
check out Shortcomings? Uh, Shortcomings will be in theaters nationwide, including Canada, on August 4th. Just go to your local theater. You know, if, uh, if you can swing it, it's one of those sort of fun, great stories uh, that have characters that I would argue that you've never seen before, right? In terms of their complexity, in terms of things they're going for, but you certainly can relate to, you know, in terms of, uh, of their experiences on a human level. So uh, hopefully everyone gets a chance to go out and, and see it on August 4th in theaters I'm, everywhere. I'm so excited. And I appreciate your time for coming on today and uh, appreciate the legacy and the, and the work that you've done in the last almost 30 years now, um, Hugh. So, you know, every uh, so often, I can't wait to see the new projects that you uh, have coming out and we can Thanks, get back Ken. on the podcast and talk about it. Yeah, I'm so grateful for the time for being able to share. And uh, you've had that front row seat just as much as I had, you know, all these different sort of projects and filmmakers and artists. And so uh, I'm grateful for the time. Thank you, Hugh. Okay. Peace. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. Special thanks to Brittany Tran, to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast.